spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today, after so many tweets, messages, and requests to get our guest, I have finally managed to corner him. And I've told him we're locking the doors, so don't worry. This interview is actually happening. We've got financial maestro, uh, public voice, agent provocateur. <laughs> Private irritant. Private irritant. Um, and Twitter sensation. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Kaya Sitole, thanks so much for coming on SMWX, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I should have known what the dress code was, but next time yeah, I'll yeah. get it right. Next time, you know, not everyone can, can ball like this. Yes, know, of it's course. Uh, <laughs> it's all about levels. <laughs> yeah. Lord knows I tried to make this interview happen. Hey? You do live far away. <laughs> <laughs> That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. So, you know, you always get Twitter streets talking um, and have contributed to the public debate in a whole host of ways. Mm. But, you know, I always check your feed for questions of finance and financial management. Obviously, that's uh, an area where you're extremely skilled and, and qualified. Mm. And it comes at a good time yep. in a weird way because our country is going through multiple crises in especially SOEs and potentially even at a national level. Yep. Um, let's start with SAA. Can you school us on this SAA crisis and, and what is your view on what's going on with, with the national carrier? Yeah, the problem with SAA is that I think it's a story that's over 20 years in the making. And the story that's over 20 years in the making is that for a long time, if you're operating in a closed economy like South Africa was, there are a lot of things that you can run on your own with nobody competing against you. So you mm. get to set the prices and literally there's no disruption to your business because there's no one else to offer the service. Sure. So the problem comes in when the whole transition between the 1990s up to 1994 happens and you decide that one of the things that you're going to do is open up your skies. Because now mm. if you're opening up your skies, it simply means that you're saying that we want to then be able to uh, get this particular entity to compete with other players in the market. Right. Now the problem with that is that if you're going to open it up to the skies, it means that you're evolving and that means that the way in which you operate also needs to evolve and keep up with what the market is demanding rather than what your feelings are. Mm. The problem with SAA is that its legacy is that it's run as a bureaucratic institution owned by the state, accountable to political principles mm. rather than business specialists. So the problem with that is that if the market is going to be evolving at a pace that the market the, the airline aviation market has evolved. If you're also going to be opening up the skies in such a way that literally anyone who wants to land in South Africa is able to do so. Mm. The question was always going to be, what is this unique um, competitive advantage that SAA has? And apparently there isn't such a unique competitive advantage. The secondary problem is that even if you don't have that particular competitive advantage, you can remain within the market, provided that you do not create these inhibitors around you that make it impossible for you to do your job. Mm. Unfortunately, in the SAA context, that's exactly what happened because for as long as you're going to have to get the concurrence of multiple ministries in order for you to decide on what transaction to enter into, by the time you get those particular approvals, the opportunity is gone. So mm. that accumulation of those factors simply means that you're running a business that is not suited for purpose in the current aviation market. And I think that's where the SAA problem mm. starts. The secondary issue then becomes a question of, well, what is it that is unique to SAA that other people can master and SAA cannot? Sure. For example, if Comair has been operating in South Africa and has 70 years of undisturbed profits operating in the same market, and let's say SAA had a much bigger slice of the market, how is it that SAA couldn't make the profits? Mm. And of course, that then calls into question the type of governance systems that SAA was subjected to. So 
there's two parts to it. <coughs> yeah. There's the question of, is the governance system appropriate? Should an open market player be subjected to the type of restraint, the type of bureaucratic red tape that is inherent in any government? And the answer is probably not. The mm. secondary question is that even if that wasn't the case, do you then put the right people in place in order to actually ensure that you can actually run the business properly? Mm. So there were failures at both levels. Firstly, it is no longer appropriate to have it so accountable to political principles when it says it wants to be an open market player because the model just doesn't simply work. The secondary question is that if that wasn't the case and you still put the type of people that SA has put in charge of its governance over the past uh, 15 to 20 years, then of course you're going to end up with problems anyway. Mm. So it is a self-manufactured crisis and I think the reality is that we've obviously been perpetuating it by simply giving it a bailout or two whenever mm. it needed it. The business model of SAA based on the constraints that it's subjected to failed ages ago. And you know, in the debate, there seems to be a great deal of ignorance of the financial facts, yeah. um, partly because SA also doesn't want to share its own financial statements, to be fair. Yeah. But, you know, th this has become an ideological debate in many cases where people who think that they are on the left believe that no matter what happens, all entities should be, all state-owned ent entities should remain within the ambit of the state. Yeah. And... Um, other people say, you know what, nothing should ever be in the hands of the state. It's mm. inherently ideological. Where do you think South Africa should fall in that debate as it relates specifically to SA? I think the fundamental problem is that, you know, the opportunity was missed ages ago. The opportunity mm -hmm. was in the 1990s when you made the decision to open up your skies. Did you actually, um, you know, make peace with what the consequences of that were going to be? Sure. And of course, we are living the consequences now. So to then go back to this idea or this ideology that, mm -hmm. you know, we should be in full control of these particular things. Well, you didn't control the entire value chain of it. If you didn't control the entire value chain of it, you're simply holding on to one aspect of it and all these multiple moving parts that you're not in control of are going to gravitate towards saying, well, actually, this is not the way to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So then the question of should the state actually be in full control of a particular airline, there's nothing wrong with state ownership. The issue is not the question of ownership. It's a question of custodianship and it's a question of governance. And that's where this government has failed. So mm -hmm. if the government is not going to learn how to govern things properly, and the government refuses to learn how to really take proper custody of state assets as important as they are, well, of course, it means that they must live with the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. So the people that sort of reduce it to a binary question of it's either a state ownership or the opposite of it. That's not where the conversation is. You've got private enterprises that underperform. You've got private enterprises that are badly managed. So it's not a question of ownership. It's really a question of once the ownership conundrum has been resolved, whichever mm. way you choose to go with it, what then is the best way of running the affairs of this entity? And I think the government probably conflates the issues of ownership with issues of management. We've There's nothing that. wrong with owning an asset, but right. the management of an asset should be left to the best people to to, to manage that asset. And the mm. government has this wonderful habit of expressly picking that people who are not very good at managing anything, people who don't have the pedigree of managing anything and putting them in charge. So that's really was the, the, is what the issue is here. So I don't think mm. it's an ownership question, it's a management question. And, and we saw that with, with this business rescue process. Yeah. You know, the minute uh, an independent decision, right or wrong, was taken, we saw immediate government statements which themselves conflicted with each other mm. and then you have provincial government leaders saying one thing and then of course you have alliance partners saying another thing and so it just seems as though 
Governance is almost like a, a charitable way of putting it. This it, It's just a, a big fight over different parts of this entity. And there isn't a coherent, yeah. like if there was a coherent governance stance and it was wrong, mm. I'd be, I'd be. And this would know where we've got. Yeah, but th there isn't even a coherent stance on where we're going. Yeah. I think the collective cluelessness of all those particular stakeholders is something that we need to interrogate further. Mm -hmm. So I think if you have to ask yourself the question of did none of the stakeholders anticipate this is where you're heading, then we should be worried about their capacity to engage in even understanding the dynamics around SAA. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have been asking the question of SAA's financial statements. We all know why SAA cannot release its financial sure. statements. And the reality here is that the Auditor General cannot sign off financial statements where the sum of liabilities exceeds your assets and that has mm. been the case for a long run in for a long time in SAA. Mm. The only way around that is if somebody says, well, if you are missing 10 rent in assets, here I am going to give you 10 rent to cover that. Mm. And that's where the concept of a bailout comes in. So the moment you had a finance minister who was adamant that he was against bailouts of an entity like SAA yeah. in the first place, it simply meant that they could never ever meet that minimum threshold mm. of that Auditor General saying, I'm going to sign this off. So the financial statements do exist actually. It's just that they cannot be released because they do not have the signature mm. of the or the Auditor General, and they're not going to get that signature mm. unless some other angel comes up and says, this is the money that I'm going to put in there. So mm. that's the first problem that you have here. Now, you have the risk of everybody engaging in a vacuum, everybody saying that we've got a problem here without actually understanding what the underlying fundamentals of this are. Sure. So if you have a provincial leader saying that, you know, it's unscientific to take a decision to cut a particular route, well, that, that government leader should simply call the people that took the decision and say, tell me what the variables were that you considered. And unfortunately, if you look at the numbers, because I've been lucky enough to see the numbers, mm. it's completely unsustainable. Mm. And the big mm. problem around people at SAA is that there doesn't seem to have been a coordinated effort to sit everybody around the table, show them exactly what the state of play is and say, this is a decision that we're going to make. That fundamental problem, I suppose, was always going to be in an era of high unemployment and literally very few opportunities for a lot of people to get into, you know, the economic mobility ladder. How do you stomach the loss of jobs that comes with you putting an airline, uh, an, um, a business like that, sure. uh, which is a, a high volume employer, putting it under any process that might result in less people being employed. Mm. But again, this is a crisis that was manufactured long ago. So it's not like we woke up on the 5th of December and suddenly somebody said, actually, this looks like an underperforming business, let's mm. get rid of it. This is something that has had to make difficult decisions for a very long time, but we've always opted out of making difficult decisions because there was something in the safe at the National Treasury. Well, the safe is now empty. And ultimately, for those who who doggedly pursue state ownership and state participation <coughs> in the economy, there's, there's an opportunity cost of constantly saving SAA because it means the state can't do other interesting things in the economy. It can't do things in higher education. Mm -hmm. It can't um, pursue a new, different entity where state ownership might be more appropriate. So the question isn't necessarily state ownership or not. It's where should the state intervene and where do we get the most outcome for state intervention? Yeah. Now, keep in mind that, you know, the, um, the rationale for state ownership in a lot of instances is simply the fact that private enterprise on its own could never be able to deliver that service mm. at a price that is affordable to the end user. So if you look at the railway infrastructure, for example, if you came to any business in 1900 or 1950 and said, I need the rail infrastructure that's going to connect the port of Richards Bay to a factory in, in, in Johannesburg, for mm. example, mm. very few people will be able to roll out that infrastructure at a price that makes sense. Sure. So that's when the state 
state has to come in and really correct that market imbalance, as it were. Same thing when rolling out the infrastructure of telecom and rolling out the infrastructure of ESCOM. Only the state could ever afford to do that. That's not to say that there's no one out there, private hands, that has the, the, capa the capital to do so. Mm -hmm. Of course, they've got the money, but for them to get, extract a return to get their money back would be so prohibitively expensive, nobody would end up using that service in, in the first sure, place. Sure. So state ownership is not a bad thing. It's actually a necessity, particularly in countries like ours, particularly in a continent like ours, where quite simply the cost of rolling out significant public interest infrastructure is so prohibitive, mm -hmm. no one in their right minds would be able to do it at a cost that makes sense to the end user. So state ownership is here to stay. State ownership is a necessity. Again, the state can create infrastructure. The state can roll out infrastructure. The state doesn't necessarily have to manage that infrastructure, especially if it keeps exhibiting that it's incapable of managing that infrastructure. The best thing to do is that you roll out something. If you get the best people to manage it, those are the people that get you the best return. Whether that's a social return or whether it's an economic return, it's when you have the best people on the job doing it that you're going to extract whatever those returns are. And it's only then that you can then say there's been a return to society, whether in the form of financial dividends or whether it's in a form of mm -hmm. social mobility or the social upliftment of the entire country. So the problem here, again, it's not the state ownership question. There's going to be other opportunities that come later on where something needs to be done, where something is critical and private enterprise simply cannot afford to do it mm -hmm. because of the demands that they're going to make and the state has to step in and correct that market imperfection. It's not a question of ownership. It's a question of management. So you, you referenced ESCOM there, which is another <clears throat> state-owned enterprise which is you know, currently making headlines. Yeah. And just to exploit your, your financial acumen here, you know, what are the stakes of this ESCOM problem for the entire budget in South Africa? Because I feel like often people don't have a sense of the perspective of, of, the, of the risk that, that ESCOM poses right now. <laughs> It's massive. And I think the fundamental problem is that if I said to you tomorrow that let's go and buy ESCOM, mm. and then the question would be how much money do we need? We need half a trillion rand in order mm. just to pay off the people that are owed by ESCOM. They owe they over 450 billion rand. And so that's obviously just this interest. Debt. Yeah, that's just you getting rid of everyone else who says you owe me. Mm. And then after there's going to be the question of how then do you finance the ongoing operations? Mm. So the ESCOM conundrum is much bigger than just the 500 billion rand that people speak about. Wow. Now, if you then look at what's going to happen this afternoon, the finance minister is mm. going to table a budget. That budget is going to be in the range of 1.3 to 1.4 trillion rand. Right. So you've got one entity whose debt exposure mm. on its own is close to half the national budget. You can sort of see the scale of the problem here. Wow. And I think a lot of people have never really put that into context to mm. say you've actually centralized your exposure to, such, to, to one particular entity. And if this entity were to default tomorrow, it has consequences for the state at mm. large. Mm. Again, what do we have? We have a government that has decided to expose itself into things referred to as cross-default clauses. Okay. So cross-default clause simply says that if you owe me as ESCOM and mm. I need my money back and you can't afford to pay me, I'm not only going to demand what you owe me at ESCOM, I'm going to demand what you owe me at Transnet, at SA and everywhere else because mm. let's face it, if you owe me 10 rand in this one entity and remember they're all guaranteed by the state, yeah. if you owe me 10 rand here and you can't pay me the 10 rand here, there's no way you're going to pay me the 2 rand that you owe me elsewhere. Mm. So if I have an opportunity to recall everything that you owe me, I'm going to demand all of it today. Mm. So that's the mm. cross-default problem that you have. Okay. So similarly, had SAA defaulted 
on its debts in December last year, mm. which is why the business rescue was an inevitable outcome. Had SAA defaulted, the question wasn't that the banks were owed nine billion rand by SAA. Mm. The problem is that if the banks had turned around and said, well, you owe us nine billion rand, you promised to pay us, you've just said you can't pay us, and that's just what you owed us in relation to SAA. Mm. There's no way you can afford to pay me what you owe me in relation to ESCOM, Transnet, Price, or whatever else. So I'm actually going to demand all of those. And the reason I'm demanding them is that it's now a race. If I can get to you first and say, pay me my money, mm. I don't care what comes afterwards because mm. if there's no money, let, that, that, that becomes our problem. Sure. So that's really the cross-default conundrum that you have. Mm. So if, for one example, one of the creditors that is owed by ESCOM uh, uh, in particular pulled the trigger and said, I want my money today, and that money cannot be paid, then you've got a national crisis because mm. suddenly national treasury would have to actually make money available to all the people that demand it on the basis that you've exposed yourself to this regime that says, if I mess up in one instance, mm. you're free to call in my other loans on another instance. Was it a good idea? I don't know. Would people have lent money to the government in the absence of these, of the, of these clauses? Mm. Probably not. Hmm. So what does this mean then for President Ramaphosa's agenda for the, the broader national conversation? You know, if, if these SOEs are extracting so much from the fiscus, mm. um, creating such a heavy debt burden. What does that mean for our state's ability? Of course, President Ramaphosa has, happens to be the president now, but for any president, quite frankly, mm. to come in now and try to address the multiple social economic crises that, that our country faces from healthcare to to education, to basic services. <laughs> you call it an agenda. Yeah, the fundamental problem <laughs> is that you have to go back to the question of what role do you want them to play? And of mm. course, the government is still fixated on this idea that you know they want to run a pro-developmental agenda, mm. whatever that means. So now, if you're talking about these particular state enterprises being at the forefront of that type of development that you want to be able to deal with, yeah. then the question is, what are these state enterprises that are at the forefront of service delivery that, when run properly, you get the greatest uh, social returns out of it? Mm. That, of course, is an entity like Prasa. Prasa is a prob probably 10,000 times more important than SAA in any given sure. um, matrix because mm -hmm. that, is the that is the entity that every single day has to cut down the long-standing impact of spatial planning that was, you know, created in apartheid years, which means that a person needs to get to work. And the person that needs to get work and use this process is not a person who's got high disposable income. Mm. So for that person, when the train doesn't arrive at the workplace and they know that their wage is dependent on their availability, that person's economic prospects, mm. that person's social prospects are compromised by something that the state could control. So you'd have to take a step back and say, in the definition of a developmental state, what are the what are the variables that are important for you to, 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 to perfect or to get right in order for you to actually pursue that mm. pro-developmental agenda? And trust me, an airline is not going to make the first 10 pages of that particular agenda because an yeah. airline quite simply isn't a priority in us talking about, you know, a proper developmental agenda. So if you had to come in as a president, you'd have to take a step back and say an entity like Transnet, for example, remarkably important because in the mm. absence of the type of infrastructure that Transnet runs, then the country grants you a standstill. That's sure. an important entity. Prasa, as I said, is remarkably important. Mm. The question of electricity provision and water provision, these things are remarkably important because if you left it just to private enterprise to do mm. it, a lot of people will quite simply never see that service. So those types of issues are the things that you identify and say, we'll do whatever 
whatever it takes to make sure that we manage and we run these institutions properly. I don't think you're going to find a lot of people, with the exception perhaps of the residents of Soweto, who are against the idea of paying for a service that they receive and they can see the value in it. We sure. all want to pay for electricity. We just want it to be available. Mm. So in that particular instance, if you already have a captive audience of people that are willing to pay for a particular service and your only responsibility is to deliver on that particular service and you can see the upside, which is yeah. the financial yeah. return that you're going to get and also the economic return, mm. why would you screw that up? And the political return. Yes. Can you imagine? So I think the, the fundamental problem is maybe the state is too large for any one, you know, um, government to deal with properly. And I think when you say that the state is too large, you, sit, you have to sit there. I was looking at a picture this morning mm. that they posted on Twitter mm. of the cabinet sitting mm. and there's 26 different ministries and then there's all these deputies and there's about 80 people in the room and the finance minister is trying to explain to them what he's going to be saying mm. later on today at 2 p.m. Mm. and you're looking at that and you're like, if I woke up and I was a president and I needed to speak to a couple of people and say, this is what we need to do in order to get the country moving, yeah. who of those 26 ministers, who of those 30 so um, mm. deputy ministers do I actually go to and say, you're the one that needs to do it? Mm. More importantly, are those the right people in the room? Because remember, these are just political appointments. Sure. They're not the CEOs of these particular enterprises. They're not the directors general. So are those the people that are actually supposed to be empowered to know that when they wake up mm. and there's a person who cannot get a train um, from Soweto to the CBD, for example, why that's a problem, not just for the person who can't get to work, but for society at large. Mm. If you look mm. at the concept of Riavaya, for example, why is it important? If it's important, let us make sure that we don't mess it up. So I think yeah, yeah. that inability to really just um, put the state into context and understand what are the key issues that we need to deal with mm. in order as for us to get the best returns out there is the fundamental limitation of our current government architecture. And <laughs> your shade, the shade thrown to the agenda was, was, was a thing of wonder. But, you know, where are we in this new dawn of ours? You know, um, because there was a great deal of hope. Um, in early 2018. And there was a sense that just because the president went for a morning walk, um, we were gonna see this dramatic turnaround, the state was gonna become more ethical, the economy was slowly going to, you know, the ship was gonna, was gonna turn around. Um, where do you think we stand? No. no, let's go back to 2018. It's Valentine's Day, 2018, isn't it? Mm. I remember that day, because I was standing outside the Tuli house. Yeah. What exactly was the great moment? And for me, the great moment was that um, the ANC woke up one day and then realized that uh, Jacob Zuma in particular had become a problem for the ANC. The ANC didn't wake up and say, what is in the best interest of the country, so therefore let us take a particular course of action. So for a very long time, if we look at the complaints that society had had in multiple forms, society had been screaming out to the ANC to say, we've got a problem here. But until it became a problem for the ANC, just absolutely nothing was going to be done about it. Mm -hmm. So the transition in 2018 for me, we didn't get a new government. We simply had a new figurehead for a particular government. And the government, and I always say that, I refuse to think that Jacob Zuma was a problem. I still think whatever architecture, whatever systems put a person like him in place and then entrenched him in state power for such a long time is what you need to be able to deal with. Because changing a figurehead overnight for me didn't deal with the fact that whatever architecture existed at local government level, for example, the issues that led the Northwest province, uh, province to be put into administration, for example, those issues prevail, regardless of who occupies whichever wing of the, of, of the union buildings. So I've always been 
very, very skeptical about this idea of a new dawn because, mm -hmm. again, I'd have to ask, what do you think changed about how our government works that then gave you the impression that things were going to be done differently? Mm -hmm. A lot of people said, oh, of course, now it's a more ethical government and then there's going to be you know, the end of corruption. Yeah, right. The Auditor General <laughs> will tell you that it's actually much worse today than it was before. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, some of the things that the Auditor General uh, uh, talks about are cumulative in nature, so it's not like, you know, we had a clean state before Valentine's mm -hmm. Day 2018 and then it became a dirty state afterwards. Mm -hmm. But the issue here is that all of those particular expectations were really based on this particular idea that you could have one person walk in and literally change and transform everything overnight. Mm. But of course, that is not what happened. And more importantly, that is not what we wanted to happen because the only way for that to happen is for us to have the type of autocratic government structure that other countries have where literally mm. one individual can issue a decree and ministers do things overnight and the state, mm. you know, responds overnight. We've decided to opt for a government that is collaborative in nature. So if you want to go and erect a, a shed in your, in, in your backyard, as President Cyril Maposa actually told us last month, it will take months and for you to get those particular approvals because mm. at the local government level there's somebody we need to understand why you're doing it and then that is then subjected to some other regulations that then feed eventually into the national discourse mm. that's the type of government we've opted for so this idea that you could put someone into the union buildings and then suddenly things were going to happen overnight meant that we had a very superficial understanding of the type of government architecture we've signed up for that's it that, just doesn't work that way that's so so fascinating actually because what you're you're making me think is is in the transition to 94, one of the priorities was, was this cooperative model to make sure that everybody was happy and everybody <clears throat> felt like they had uh, power shared. And that worked to maintain short-term peace, but it's yep. made our government completely unwieldy for whoever takes it over. And so now we have to live with everyone agreeing before we can move left. And remember, the pursuit of consensus is not just at the government level. It is something that is fundamental to the architecture of the NC. Remember, the NC sure. governs by consensus. You mm -hmm. have to convince as many people of your particular idea before it becomes a matter of policy. Mm -hmm. That's how they decide to govern. And I think, unfortunately, this has filtered out into the state where, you know, you could sit down with a whole lot of people and say, mm -hmm. you know, we've got a problem in that there are too many pit toilets throughout the system. And Angie Motsecha will tell you, yes, I do agree that we need to eradicate pit toilets mm. but I'm responsible for the basic education portfolio and of course when people say she's responsible for basic education and you see a school you assume that that belongs to her mm. and then she has to explain to you that yes of course I'm the one that says I needed a school in that particular district but I'm not the one that runs public works so I mm. cannot put the infrastructure there I do not run the Department of Human Settlements so if you're saying that you know we need accommodation for example for mm. teachers or students that is not my responsibility mm. I do not run the Department of Water and Sanitation I do not run the Department of Energy. I do not run the mm. Department of Minerals or wherever ESCOM would belong on any day. Yeah, and even if I did run all of those mm. things, I actually do not control that particular budget, whether it's a district budget, a municipal budget, or even mm. a provincial budget. So I sit in one particular corner being the Minister of Basic Education. I understand the problem because you're telling me that there's a problem, but if I woke up tomorrow and I said mm. I wanted to fix it, I'd have to show up with about 10 or 15 different other stakeholders, different other ministries, mm. different other bureaucrats, and we're just simply aren't in the habit of doing that as, as a state. Mm. So that is really what you're seeing here is the governance paralysis where you're suddenly saying that I don't think Ramaphosa intends not to do things. He can say and pronounce that I want to do this. In fact, mm. it was in August 2018 in the morning when he had this meeting at the Sheraton Hotel where he then got everyone to agree it was big business, it was himself and then the minister to say we're going to fix all the toilet problems throughout mm. the system. And then weeks later, the minister of basic education was in court challenging that uh, that court decision that said to her, well, you actually must do it on time. So the type of governance system that we've signed up for 
are the things that we need to interrogate and mm. ask, are these appropriate for the type of um, uh, issues that we're trying to resolve? Yeah. So, for example, if the toilet example remains unresolved 26 years later, there must be a different way of doing it. It cannot be appropriate that I have to explain what Angie's defense is. And she's got a legitimate defense. Sure. That is sure. really uh, how the state works. Mm. But surely somebody should be able to say in instances like this where we're going to get the, extract the greatest social returns, the greatest economic returns, and perhaps even the greatest political returns, we need to be able to do things in a way that is more responsive to the nature of the problem that we're trying to solve, rather than having to defer to what the template is, because the template is designed for something much bigger. Mm. A crisis needs you to respond at the time of crisis, not to then uh, um, line up another summit. So, so even today, there's another land summit coming up. Dear oh, God, I don't know goodness. how many there have been. It's just the way government works. Mm. Followed by Lekhotla and then a uh, working group. And then for the NEC to hang out in Irene and override it anyway. So. <laughs> um, I like that because, you know, there's this, there's this narrative that we, we need to be solutions driven. Mm. And of course, we need to find solutions and there are thousands of short-term solutions. But if we don't understand the, the, the nature and the structure of the problem, mm. we're going to constantly be in a situation where we're clueless about why it keeps replicating itself. And you also have some interesting views on the unemployment crisis. Obviously, this disproportionately affects young people as well. But um, you think we should be rethinking the nature of the unemployment problem. Tell us why you think that. To rethink would give the impression that we are thinking about it currently. This is true. I'm not particularly sure about that. <laughs> so the fundamental problem is that we've got the crisis manifesting at multiple levels. And at those two levels, you'd say you've got the crisis of unemployment and you've got the crisis of unemployability. Okay. And the problem here is that everyone will say to you that we've got 10 million people unemployed today. I think the number is around 10.8 million sure. people that are unemployed. My answer is that if I gave you 10 million job opportunities tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to fill them. You're mm. still going to have an unemployment crisis. Mm. And the reason is that, unfortunately, the world of work evolves at a much faster pace than the ability of people to transition and to relearn. That only applies to people who actually have the capacity to learn and relearn skills. Mm. Now, if you have people that haven't even managed to complete, um, you know, um, a trick, for example, sure. and those people have not transitioned into higher education, then their capacity to learn workplace-based skills is severely compromised. It's probably non-existent. Mm. So then the secondary problem that you find is who is responsible for the burden of onboarding? Now, the burden of onboarding simply says that even if I say there's a job tomorrow, I'm going to say I want someone who's already had exposure to the type of things that I do sure. because that person should show up tomorrow and start doing the job. If you bring me someone who has absolutely no exposure to what it is that I do, I then have to carry the cost of skilling that person mm. and then transitioning them into the workplace. And unfortunately, again, we chose to be a capitalist system of this nature. The capitalist model says that I need to cut down my costs. So if I can cut out the cost of onboarding, I simply will not incur that cost, which means that a lot of people will simply never get that opportunity because mm -hmm. I'm saying it's not my duty to do so. The question is whose duty is it to ensure that when people transition into the workplace, they're able to adapt and reschool themselves mm -hmm. if necessary? Is it the responsibility of higher education institutions? If I said that that's the answer, I'm only speaking to what the 500,000 or so sure. that have the privilege of making there. 
I am talking about a 10 million strong crisis. Mm. So even if I said all universities need to change the way they do things, who am I speaking for? I'm mm. speaking for that particular cohort of people who are able to access that platform in the first place. So the entire model is broken. And I think, you know, the unemployability crisis troubles me more because you are then asking yourself the question, should we end up in this particular utopia where suddenly there's mm. an explosion of 5 million jobs or whatever the it is? The job summit bears fruit. Yeah, the president keeps coming up with different numbers after yeah. Every summit, even yeah. if you had that explosion of jobs, would I be able to fill those jobs? Mm. And my fear is that I would struggle to fill those jobs simply because of the way we interact with job seekers mm. and the way we interact with incumbents within the job system. And I think also the question of, you know, downward wage rigidity in that in South Africa you cannot decrease a person's wage if they're still doing the same job. Mm. So a lot of people that, you know, struggle with um, uh, dealing with being transitioned out of the workplace is always a question of, well, there's two of us, we're getting paid a particular wage. Mm. Our employer comes and says, I can only afford this wage for one individual. There's no way you and I are going to sit together and say mm. half a wage is better than nothing. Mm. We're just not in the habit of doing that as South Africans. And of course, those types of dynamics make it very difficult for somebody to actually figure out what the long-term solution is. Mm. And that's where perhaps the DA's approach to governance intrigues me a lot, because I think from my understanding of what the DA seeks to say yeah. in that we spend too much time trying to tailor outcomes rather than tailoring inputs. Mm. So I think the reason I went to work in, in education in the first place is because, you know, when you get to the Santon offices and you're an accountant, of course, your pathway to economic mobility is assured. Mm. But my concern was that I needed to see a lot more people being part of the pipeline. Mm. And that requires you to actually deal with actually um, fixing the structural issues, whether it's at basic education level, whether it's at higher education level, you deal with the issues at inception point rather than you waking up and saying, oh mm. dear God, here we are, the demographics don't look too good, let us have a policy direction that then simply manufactures outcomes. And I think that's what the DA seeks to try to explain, in that it is not appropriate for you to simply go to the exit stage of the problem and say the demographics don't look good enough, mm. here's a policy that says put these people there. You must create an ecosystem where by the time I look at the uh, at the outcomes, the demographics of the people that are in the pipeline mirror what the country uh, requires anyway. Mm. So then there's no need for those reactive interventions. And I think we've done a lot of those. The one particular example I always refer to is the concept of the language compensation policy. I mean, the language compensation policy is something that made sense to the politicians of the day when they came up with it. I think it was 1998. But I always look back at it and say, look, for me, that couldn't have been a permanent measure. You cannot simply say that on the basis that you're not taught in your mother tongue, which simply means you're black, sure. as some people have cynically said. Mm. We're then going to get your metric certificate and say, actually, there must be this addition of 5% uh, of your marks in order to compensate for the fact that you're not taught in your mother tongue. Mm. I need to be able to ask the question of why are we not able to teach people in their mother tongue mm. if we already have a policy that acknowledges that there are significant disadvantages associated with not being taught in your mother mm. tongue. Mm. So why would you tailor that? outcomes rather than fixing the initial the, 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 the fundamental variables of sure. saying give people that uh, particular opportunity and then you get the best outcomes mm. and I think that's what is holding us back as a country the fact that we've got a fixation with fixing outcomes rather yeah. than dealing with the fundamental inputs whether you're talking NHR whether you're talking higher education whether you're talking the employment crisis mm. I think that's one part of the governance model that the DA seems to have a much more intimate understanding of we cannot be tailoring outcomes we need to deal with variables mm. yeah well, we've, we've quizzed you on all kinds of serious, uh, serious matters, mm. but um, I wanted to ask just in closing, on a lighter note, mm. your relationship with Twitter, um, 
I see you also sending some love notes to some people. I, I won't ask. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Just just Twitter as a whole, like we live in this interesting era where people of a similar generation to us have this outlet. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on Twitter and how did how has your Twitter journey changed over time the more prominent you become on the platform? Look, I suppose my Twitter journey hasn't been as hostile as Helen Ziller's Twitter <laughs> journey has been. Um, look, you just praise the DA and then you just... <laughs> no, I mean, the, the principle was that, you know, I still think that we need to interrogate the question of how we deal with the question of input variables versus outcomes, which ones should you tinker with? Yeah, I, yeah. I think, obviously, when Twitter started, I hated it. I just didn't understand mm. it. Uh, mm. And particularly because I'm the long-form conversation yeah, person. Yeah. I'd rather write an eight-page piece. And I don't care if people don't have the, uh, the, the stamina to read. If yeah. it's worth reading, then they'll get to and the end. always sending reading. people things to read. Yeah. <laughs> so now the problem was when Twitter comes and everybody says you must compress everything to 140 characters, mm -hmm. I was like, no, surely you can't put enough substance on 140 characters for people to engage. And remember, this was the, before the age of threading, so you couldn't even link mm -hmm. the tweets. So um, originally, it was a bit of a struggle, but I think over time, you then got to see the value of it in that for a lot of people, if the generation that we want to interact with, want to inter interact on that plat particular platform, you have to adapt to mm. interacting with them. Mm. So you learned over time that, okay, actually this is a way to craft the message in order for you to get mm. that particular um, you know, point across within that particular limitation. Yeah. And I suppose it also helps if you're going to be writing because now I write a column for a particular newspaper where mm. they specifically mm. give me um, a limitation on number of words. Yeah. And I hate that because it's like, yeah. but what if the idea requires you know, greater exploration? And they're sure. like, well, sure. people need to be able to finish it within a particular time frame. What's the so column so people can find it? We have no, no problem. I write for the business day business every day, every, every every second Thursday. Every out, second Thursday. Out, yeah, yeah I sure. offer yeah. an opinion. So I wake up on a Wednesday morning and then I say, what do I want to vent about? Yeah. And then I write it and the cool, business cool. day publishes it. <laughs> I hope they carry on publishing it. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, and, and ironically, that was on the basis of what I used to write on Twitter and on Facebook. Mm. So I was actually hunted by one of the editors um, cool. of business day that says, well, actually, you need to be able mm. to write this on a formal platform. I was like, oh, okay, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, so yeah. it's been useful. Um, again, it still represents a very small part of our society. Sure. And I think sometimes we get carried away by thinking that the voice that resonates on Twitter mm. is reflective of what happens out there. Mm. And you'll see a lot when perhaps if you ran a Twitter poll today and said who's going to win the next general election, of mm. course the FF is going to win it on yeah. Twitter yeah. until yeah. you get to a general election itself and they can't even crack 15%. Mm. So those types of dis uh, disconnects, people need to be able to appreciate sure. that the way people engage with information is very different. Twitter is still a very elitist space. Mm. I mean, there are very few people who can afford to even have enough data to be online the whole day, sure. to be able to troll people, to be able to call ministers to account. Mm -hmm. It's a very privileged space to be in, and mm -hmm. I think you're better off using it responsibly. And in some instances, you've seen some people that you thought ought to know better, saying things that you like, actually, what yeah. do you think you're going to get out of this? What yeah. is the ultimate point? And I, perhaps I suspect that the DA in particular suffers a lot from that, where they don't take a position of saying, after I've written this, and it then goes out there and people associate me with the political party. Mm -hmm. What are they going to think about the political party? Mm -hmm. And it was quite interesting in that the DA was 
engaging in some form of denialism. The reason Helen Ziller came back into the DA is that for a lot of people, they associate her with the brand. So that link between the DA and Helen Ziller is very strong. Sure. So it becomes very difficult to then imagine how you can then suddenly detach the DA from Helen Ziller in relation to the controversial things that she does. Mm. So that is the collateral damage that they're going to have to live with because if you're saying she's so strong a brand, she's so strong a personality, we've re-engaged her, mm. we've re-embraced her in the party, you're acknowledging that people do associate a lot of what the DA is and what the DA does with her. Mm. So of course, if she then wants to engage on this particular platform with the understanding that when, when people see this, they see this as a DA opinion, as a DA view, how do you manage that? Mm. And Musi Maiman has struggled comprehensively to do with a particular problem. I don't know if John Steenhazen is doing better because guess what? He just simply blocks everybody. <laughs> Have you been blocked? Of course. Oh, okay. I'm still, yeah. Oh, but, wow. Yeah. Must be nice being you. <laughs> no, um, bro, thanks so much for, for coming on, sharing your insights. I know I will have satisfied so many people. I'm not going to get DMs and messages on Twitter anymore to get you on the show. I've done, my, I've done my bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, bro, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your insights. And um, hope we can get you on again. But don't worry, I won't bother you too much in the next few months. That's fine. <laughs> we'll build up some more things to talk about. Exactly, exactly. Just, just, drop, just drop one of your famous threads on Twitter. I'm going to go on SMWX one day and then like 800 people will be like... We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Thanks, eh? Tweet him if you want him back. Don't tweet me. Tweet him. We'll put his, his Twitter handle in the comments below and, and then tweet him. Okay. That's the way to go. <laughs> thanks, Bro, thanks so much. Eh? Like, share, subscribe. Aye. 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 <laughs>